In December 1922, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, and Leon Trotsky formed the first socialist nation, the Soviet Union. It was their goal to rid Russia and then the world of capitalism. In capitalism's place would be an economic system in which the people not only owned the means of production, but also lived in a classless, moneyless, and stateless society. It was called communism. To get there, Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky planned to follow the map laid out by German philosopher Karl Marx, whose work explained how to get from capitalism to communism. This was known as Marxism. But over time, other political and economic philosophers expanded on Marxism. In the Soviet Union, Marxism-Leninism, with its focus on the urban proletariat, became the official ideology. And as Marxism began to spread worldwide, Asian Marxists wrote their own version of Marxism-Leninism. Instead of the urban proletariat leading the revolution, the Asian Marxists believed the fight belonged to the rural peasantry. When Mao Zedong and Pol Pot took control of China and Cambodia in the mid-20th century, many communists hoped they were witnessing the foundation of a utopia that would put power in the hands of the people. Instead, what sprung up was brutal dictatorship, which led to famine, cultural and political oppression, and genocide. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we're beginning our new season on 20th century dictatorships in China and Cambodia. During the first half of the century, Mao Zedong and Pol Pot rose to power on a tide of anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist sentiment. But once in power, their attempt to create a communist paradise resulted in death, destruction, and terror. This week, we'll kick things off with Chairman Mao Zedong, a devout anti-imperialist. Mao rose to power during the chaotic, decades-long Chinese Civil War after which he established his version of Marxist-Leninism, Maoism. Next week, we'll explore Maoism in practice. We'll dive into Mao's contentious relationship with the Soviet Union and the failure of his Great Leap Forward program. And we'll examine how his fade from the political spotlight led to the Cultural Revolution, a 10-year period of turmoil and fear. Coming up, We'll delve into the rise of Mao Zedong. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Chairman Mao Zedong wasn't always a ruthless despot. In fact, he wasn't always a committed communist. To fully understand how Mao became one of Marxism-Leninism's leading theorists, we have to go back to the world he emerged out of, the final days of the Qing dynasty in China. By the 1800s, the Qing dynasty was on a slow but inevitable decline. After ascending to power in the mid-1600s, its emperors were struggling to compete with rival nations from both the West and the East. Their problems started with the mid-18th century opium wars against Britain. After trade between China and Britain began to stagnate, Britain decided to inject new life into the relationship by pumping opium onto China's streets. Thanks to their Indian colonies, the British had an abundance of the drug. Dao Guang Emperor, China's leader, didn't want the drug in his country, so he made it illegal which Britain took as an insult to free trade. A series of wars broke out in which the British decimated the Chinese, ultimately grabbing land from the Qing dynasty and increasing their opium imports. These opium wars became the first domino to drop in the quest of Western influence over China. In the years to follow, China was forced to sign lopsided commerce treaties with other European nations and the United States. After the treaties came the West's cultural influence. Ever-growing troops of missionaries established new Christian and capitalist educational institutions that challenged China's centuries-long traditions. This imperialistic influence flooded China's cities and then towns and finally villages with resentment against the West. And then, China's future leader came of age. Mao Zedong was born on December 26, 1893, in the village of Shaoshan. Located in the rural Hunan province, Shaoshan was a hub for agriculture, especially rice cultivation. And Mao's father was one of the wealthiest rice farmers in Shaoshan. Growing up, Mao was caught between two very different worlds, farming and academia. While Mao's father sent his eldest son to school, he only intended for Mao to receive enough education to run the family farm. Mao, however, hated physical labor. After spending his early years working in the paddy fields, Mao already suspected the farmer's life wasn't for him. But the straw that seemingly broke the camel's back occurred in Mao's mid-teens. According to Mao, a cousin gave him a book called Shengxi Weian, or Words of Warning to an Affluent Age. The book argued that if China hoped to keep up with the rest of the world, it needed to modernize. And the only way to modernize was to form a parliamentary government. The book piqued Mao's curiosity and made him want to read more so he could truly understand these ideas. So, in 1910, at 17 years old, he enrolled in a new-style school in the neighboring city of Xiangxiang. 
Instead of memorizing the traditional Confucian classics, Mao was introduced to Western-style education for the first time. For the next several years, Mao devoted himself to his studies, learning about the French Revolution, Napoleon, Rousseau, and Southeast Asian colonization. He read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations and Darwin's The Origin of Species. It was a far cry from learning how to run a rice farm. Then, around 1913, 20-year-old Mao came under the spell of arguably his most influential teacher, Yang Changji. Yang was a European-educated social science teacher. As historian Rebecca Carl notes, Yang taught philosophy and ethics not as timeless and abstract norms, but rather as historical systems of transformative social change. Yang not only introduced Mao and his contemporaries to Western philosophers like Immanuel Kant, he also shared radical left-leaning newspapers with them. Under Yang's tutelage, Mao spent long nights debating the best course to save China. But Mao had no real idea what political system was the right one for his country. All he knew was that he was anti-imperialist. In that, he wasn't alone. In the early 1910s, as Mao was studying, a series of revolts and uprisings were sweeping through China. The face of the rebellion, Sun Yat-sen, demanded that China become a republic. It seemed he was getting results in February 1912 when the emperor abdicated. Imperial China was no more. But the republic was only sort of born. The new republican government was weak. Within two years of its formation, a former Qing dynasty general, Yuan Shikai, took control and proclaimed himself emperor. And since the new Republican government didn't have a strong army, no one could stop him. But two years later, Yuan died. The resulting power vacuum divided China into various military districts ruled by generals. The warlord era had begun. As China fell under a fragmented military dictatorship, Mao Zedong was turning further and further to the left. In 1918, the 24-year-old graduated from school and followed his mentor, Yang Changji, to Beijing. Not long after the move, Mao joined radical reading groups sponsored by two of China's leading Marxists, Li Dazhao and Chen Dushou. By most accounts, this was Mao's introduction to Marxism and the Russian Revolution. At the time, Marxism in China was a fringe movement. Very few people understood it or considered it a viable option for revolution. And at first, even Mao wasn't entirely sold on the idea. But the more he read leftist essays and pamphlets, the more radical he became. And before too long, Mao was writing revolutionary articles of his own. In particular, Mao used his pen to criticize the recently negotiated Treaty of Versailles. Though it may have formally ended World War I in Europe, the treaty also affected China. And the Chinese people were none too happy about it. During World War I, China had joined the Allies in recovering the German-controlled Shandong province along the Yellow Sea. Unfortunately, the Treaty of Versailles gave that land to China's enemy, 
Japan. To Chinese students, this was a culmination of how weak China had become on the international stage, especially thanks to the warlords. On May 4, 1919, students took to Beijing's streets in protest, demanding that China refuse to sign the treaty. Soon, strikes and boycotts swept into Shanghai. Unfortunately, the May 4th movement, as it became known, ultimately failed. The treaty was signed and Japan acquired the disputed Chinese territory. But moving into a new decade, the people were galvanized for change, including Mao. Mao was vocal about the danger of Japanese imperialism and called for boycotts of Japanese products. His writings became popular with the very same Marxist thinkers he was reading. They appreciated not only his social critiques, but also his rhetoric against the warlords. By the start of 1920, he was corresponding with China's top two Marxists, Li Dajiao and Chen Dushou. The correspondence couldn't have come at a better time. Just as Mao was getting closer to committing to communism, Li and Chen were making contact with the leaders of global communism, the Soviet Union. In 1919, Vladimir Lenin created the Communist International, or Comintern, to incite global communist revolutions. Nothing was off the table. Financial aid, weapons, propaganda, subversion, or military assistance. The Comintern was ready to help other nations replace imperialist bourgeois governments with communist ones. Including China. The Comintern agreed to help Li Dachao and Chen Dushou form the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, in late 1920. However, debate about how to turn the party into a new society was heated. Initially, Mao wondered if it could be accomplished peacefully. The ideal way was to influence others through the education system and trade unions, essentially activism. But perhaps that was unrealistic, especially in a China ruled by warlords. Ultimately, he joined many of his fellow radicals in deciding that violent action was the only way to overthrow imperialism. 27-year-old Mao attended the party's first Congress in July 1921. Since party membership comprised a mere 57 people at the time, the CCP's first mission was to organize. Mao went back to Hunan province, established a self-study university, and used Marxist propaganda to recruit new party members and promote class warfare. The class struggle was how they would defeat the warlords. Within a year, Mao transformed himself into a successful revolutionary. Throughout Hunan province, he organized various trade unions, incited labor strikes, and added members to the party. With each passing month, he increasingly stood out in the party ranks. Unfortunately, the CCP faced an uphill battle when it came to vying for total political control. The communists were in direct competition with another political party, the Kuomintang, or the Chinese Nationalist Party. The nationalists were a center-right party, and their democratic bourgeois beliefs 
were the complete opposite of the communists. And yet, despite these ideological differences, the Chinese communists received an unexpected order from Moscow. Team up with the capitalistic nationalists and revolt from within. Mao couldn't believe his ears. The Soviets were telling them to make a deal with the enemy. Coming up, Mao and the CCP begin a two-decade-long battle for control of China. Hello, listeners. It's Richard from Parcast Network. We all know that when it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In our love story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, our love story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow our love story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. By the early 1920s, Mao Zedong was a founding member of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. He returned to his native Hunan province on a mission to organize and recruit— And as it turned out, he was pretty good at it. Unfortunately, not everything was going so smoothly. At around this same time, the CCP faced a dilemma. Whether or not to follow Vladimir Lenin's advice and ally with the capitalistic Kuomintang Party. The Kuomintang, or Nationalist Party, was led by none other than Sun Yat-sen, the face of the revolution that overthrew imperial China. After stepping down as provisional president, Sun had watched China fall into the hands of the warlords. Realizing that force was the only way to unite all of China, Sun created the Kuomintang. Despite being pro-capitalism, the nationalists were organized similarly to the Russian communists. They had a centralized party and a panache for organizing strikes. And most importantly, thanks to Sun's name recognition, they had numbers. The communists didn't. By 1922, the CCP's official membership was a whopping 195. The Soviet Union recognized the importance of manpower. So Lenin advised the Chinese communists to ally with the nationalists. The communists could then disrupt from within and push the nationalists to the left, essentially forming a block within the nationalists. It was a controversial suggestion. Despite both parties' shared hatred for the current warlord dictators, neither agreed on China's future. And yet, the CCP caved to Moscow's wishes and teamed up with the nationalists. 
This alliance became known as the United Front. By 1924, Mao was officially a member of both parties. And in fact, thanks to his standing within the Communist Party, he became a member of both parties' executive committees. What he saw from that vantage point at the top of the United Front did not make him optimistic about China's future. He was increasingly convinced that the Communists' hopes of seizing power from within was a pipe dream. Should the Nationalists ultimately overthrow the warlords, their superior numbers would mean any Communist agitation towards left-leaning policies would have minimal influence. Chinese laborers would see continued exploitation and oppression. With every meeting, Mao grew more exhausted and disillusioned. So in December 1924, he returned to his home region of Hunan province. He needed a break. Unfortunately, the countryside didn't provide it. While back in his hometown of Shaoshan, Mao lived among the peasants. And the peasants were angry. The Chinese peasants had always experienced exploitation. When the Qing dynasty fell, the peasants hoped for socioeconomic advancement. Unfortunately, under the warlords, nothing improved. Wages such as they were stagnated while the warlords and landlords got wealthier. Frustrated, the peasants began to form unions. By the time Mao returned home, several million peasants had organized throughout Hunan province. Demonstrations and strikes were cropping up all over the region. Historically, Marxism was an urban proletariat movement. The target demographic was city laborers who lived off a wage or salary. But when Mao witnessed the peasants' drive to overthrow the ruling class, he had a realization. The urban proletariat shouldn't lead the Chinese Communist Revolution. It should come from the rural peasantry. With a renewed sense of revolutionary hope, Mao got back to work as an advocate for the United Front. And in late spring of 1926, he got himself named the director of the Peasant Movement Training Institute. From May to October, Mao's role was to organize the peasants, train them militarily, and take detailed inventory on agricultural conditions. Then, with roughly 100,000 troops prepared and ready, it was time for the United Front to take its fight to the warlords. This so-called Northern Expedition was carried out in two stages. Stage one involved communist agents infiltrating warlord-controlled territory, riling up the peasants, and overthrowing the landlords. Since the landlords were crucial in financing the warlords' dictatorship, any kind of labor upheaval disrupted money flow to the warlords. And more than anything, the warlords wanted their money. Once the communists and the peasants successfully sowed chaos in a region, the nationalists would come in and battle the distracted warlord's army head-on. This was stage two. The northern expedition ultimately became a quasi-guerrilla war. The two-stage strategy allowed the United Front to quickly and efficiently move from region to region, capturing towns and cities. And within two years, it had proved a success. The United Front defeated the warlords. For the first time since the Qing Dynasty, 
China was unified under a single banner, the Kuomintang Nationalists. The Nationalists quickly established a one-party government in Nanjing, with the alleged goal of establishing democracy in China. Unfortunately, the Nationalists' success meant a communist defeat. During the campaign, the peasant uprising proved to be too radical. After overthrowing the landlords, they would then enact land reform and redistribute property. To the nationalists, who are 100% capitalist and pro-landlord, the communists were a threat that needed to be eliminated. They had served their purpose and helped to take down the warlords. Now, their time had come. The man personally leading that anti-communist charge was the new leader of the Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek took control of the Nationalists after Sun Yat-sen died in 1925, and he wasted no time trying to eliminate the communist threat. He kicked off his bloody purge with the Shanghai Massacre of 1927. Over the course of the year, thousands of people were murdered, causing CCP membership to fall from roughly 60,000 to 10,000. Communists who survived, like Mao, were forced to hide in the countryside. But going into hiding did not mean Mao was going to accept this appalling state of affairs. He gathered all the allies he could and led the small troop to the Jinggongshan Mountains in Jiangxi province, where they could strategize their next moves. Eventually, more surviving communist generals heard about the gathering and joined the group. As Mao's followers grew, they began calling themselves the Red Army. But as far as armies went, they were still tiny. Mao knew that the only way to survive was through guerrilla warfare. So he led his followers through the mountainous region for the next couple of years quietly. Or mostly quietly. Along the way, the Red Army confiscated land and redistributed it among the peasant population. Eventually, Mao and the Red Army settled in the small town of Ruijin in Jiangxi province. And in the middle of 1930, 36-year-old Mao officially declared the surrounding region a new communist state, the Jiangxi Soviet. Mao planned to use the Jiangxi Soviet as a long-term base to establish a communist government. At the same time, he wanted to refine his version of Marxist ideology. After all, he'd always been a thinker as well as a freedom fighter. Unfortunately, not everyone within the party was enamored of his thinking. Most members of the Chinese communist leadership did not support his insistence on using peasants, and they especially hated his radical ideas for land distribution. Mao held on to his power over the Jiangxi Soviet for several years. But in 1932, when the rest of the Communist Party's leaders fled to the area to avoid the nationalists, they wrested away control. His position within the party was in jeopardy. Little did he realize that the Japanese, of all people, would revitalize his career. Around the same time that Mao Zedong's star seemed to be fading, Japan invaded China and captured Manchuria. The conquest met little resistance because nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek still had his eyes on the communists. 
except the Japanese were a legitimate threat, looking to influence or invade further into China. By 1933, Chang realized he was going to have to deal with the Japanese eventually. To free up as many troops as possible, he needed to finish the communist extermination once and for all. The nationalists encircled the Jiangxi Soviet and heavily shelled the communists. Miraculously, the communists managed to survive. However, after a year of constant bombardment, the CCP decided they needed to abandon Jiangxi. The revolutionary cause depended on it. On October 16, 1934, 86,000 communist troops and supporters departed Jiangxi, and no one knew precisely when or where it would end. This lack of a plan proved disastrous. The communists were forced to move at a snail's pace because of all the equipment they carried, and the slow speed exposed them to constant attacks by the nationalists. A month after their departure, the communists found themselves trapped at the Xiang River. The nationalists capitalized on the moment, and a bloody battle ensued. When the dust settled, the nationalists had killed roughly 50,000 communists. In almost one fell swoop, the CCP was on the verge of extinction. Something needed to change immediately. In January 1935, the party held a conference to discuss their next steps. During the meeting, Mao Zedong was elected as chairman of the Politburo, the executive committee. It isn't clear exactly why Mao received the promotion, given his dwindling status. Perhaps in the face of recent disasters, someone who hadn't been at the helm lately seemed like the most appealing pick. But regardless, Mao saw a chance not only to reclaim his position, but to solidify it. Mao proposed the party break up into multiple columns and to take different routes. This would not only confuse the nationalists, but hopefully break up their troops and thus even up the numbers in future battles. He also suggested that they change their destination to Shanxi province near the Great Wall and closer to the Japanese. Because in Mao's opinion, if the communists could focus their attention on battling China's longtime enemy, the Japanese, they could win over the people. This strategy came with some problems. It did mean breaking away from Moscow. Joseph Stalin, now head of the Soviet Union, still wanted a revolution through class struggle. And some of the party's military leaders didn't like it. When the conference ended, those generals took their armies and headed toward Tibet. But Mao wasn't deterred. He gathered up everyone who was left and made for Shanxi. On October 20th, 1935, a little over a year after the communists left Jiangxi, they finally made it. Or a few of them did. Of the 86,000 people who started the march, roughly 8,000 survived the 6,000-mile journey. And those 8,000 were exhausted, starving, and morally defeated. The euphemistically named Long March may have almost destroyed the Communist Party. But it cemented 42-year-old Mao Zedong's place as the party's head. There was still some dissent to Mao's revolutionary goals, but by 1935, 
there was no one left to usurp his position. Now, he could focus his attention on defeating the Japanese and expelling them from Manchuria. Unfortunately, Mao quickly realized the only way to achieve it was a deal with the devil. Once more, he needed to ally with Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang nationalists. But this time, he'd make sure he came out of the alliance on top. Coming up, Mao makes his bid to lead China. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. By October 1935, 42-year-old Mao Zedong had made it to the top of the Chinese Communist Party and led his followers on a 6,000-mile journey to a new base in northern China. Mao knew right away that he was going to need to cultivate his image. If he wanted to hold on to power and keep the dispirited, shrunken CCP alive, he would need to inspire others to join the communist revolution. And what better way to do that than to present yourself as a fierce but humble freedom fighter living in a cave? Mao and the communists eventually set their base in the small town of Yan'an. The peasants in the semi-arid region were known for their cave-dwelling lifestyle. It was, by all measures, the complete opposite of luxury. To Mao... It was perfect, and not just because of the appealing imagery. Here, far from the nationalists, he could study, think, and figure out what exactly he was selling to the Chinese people. So he dove headfirst into communist literature. Mao devoured books and essays written by Marx, Lenin, and Stalin, and put his own interpretation of Marxism-Leninism down on paper, one designed specifically for China. It became known as Mao Zedong Thought, or Maoism. In short, Maoism was the culmination of Mao's belief that the peasants were the vanguard of the communist revolution, not the urban proletariat. It took what Marx, Lenin, and Stalin had been preaching for years and shifted the setting. With his beliefs cemented and documented for posterity, Mao could finally call himself a theorist, carving his name in the Mount Rushmore of socialist ideologues. Of course, not all communists, even within China, agreed with Maoism. Many still held traditional Marxist views, but Mao was convinced that his way of thinking was the right way for China. 
Not only was he planning to convert the whole of China under his new doctrine, but he was also going to apply it to the way he waged war. Peasant guerrilla warfare was the way for Mao to succeed, and he was going to use it to face down China's greatest enemy, Japan. By the late 1930s, the threat of a Japanese invasion further into China seemed more real than ever. However, nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek still wanted the communists eliminated first. Unfortunately for Chiang, some within the Nationalist Party vehemently disagreed. In their eyes, the Japanese were a military force to be reckoned with, and the communists just a ragtag group of mountain-dwelling agitators. Plus, an alliance with the guerrilla fighters might give them the advantage they needed to get rid of the Japanese. So, they decided to take matters into their own hands. In December 1936, a nationalist general kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek and held him hostage until he agreed to stop fighting the communists and work with them to defeat the Japanese. Mao hoped that this pressure on the nationalist side would mean Chiang, his longtime enemy, might get sidelined. Unfortunately, Chiang was allowed to remain in power. But Mao, as always, didn't let a small disappointment distract him. Unlike Chiang, he knew that defeating the Japanese imperialists would be the most crucial factor to political success moving forward. So, he did what gave him the best chance of defeating them and agreed to an alliance with the nationalists. After a broken partnership and years of trying to kill each other, the United Front was back. The Second Sino-Japanese War began in July 1937, when Japan launched a full-scale invasion of China. Despite the new alliance between the communists and nationalists, the militarily superior Japanese swept through the country, making it to Shanghai by November. Once Shanghai fell, the Japanese turned their attention toward the nationalist capital. What happened next would go down as one of the worst atrocities in world history, the so-called Rape of Nanjing. From the middle of December 1937 to January 1938, roughly 300,000 Chinese were brutally murdered. The vast majority were civilians. But they weren't just quickly executed. Many were buried alive or bayoneted. And as if the atrocities couldn't get worse, tens of thousands of women were sexually assaulted and forced into sex slavery. In the face of these disasters, however, Mao stepped forward and provided hope. He assured China that the fight was not over. After all, the country's rough terrain and size would slow down the Japanese and keep them from complete victory. And while the war might be long and hard, Mao told China, on the other side, the country could achieve something great. What exactly that greatness might look like reached much of the Chinese public in a January 1940 pamphlet. On New Democracy laid out Mao's vision for China. As historian Frank DeCotter writes, Mao portrayed the Communist Party as a broad front striving to unite all revolutionary classes, including the national bourgeoisie. 
Mao promised a multi-party system, democratic freedom, and protection of private property. Mao never intended any of this. Instead, he was appealing to the people who had become disillusioned with the nationalist government. Since taking power in 1927, the nationalists had become increasingly militaristic and fascist in their rule of China, especially when it came to censorship of books, newspapers, and film. Mao already had the support of the rural peasantry, but with On New Democracy, he gained the fealty of the intellectuals, students, writers, teachers, journalists, and artists. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, his message that China could still win this fight against the Japanese received an unexpected boost. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor. The next day, the United States declared war on Japan. The attack on Pearl Harbor destroyed much of America's navy. To buy themselves time to rebuild, America began funneling money to the Chinese. If the Chinese distracted the Japanese with the fight in China for a little while longer, they would arrive to help as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, the money America was sending went to the Kuomintang nationalists. And with the Soviet Union stretched thin fighting the Nazis, cash and weapons weren't making it to the communists. Luckily, the communists were in good shape. While Mao himself never stepped foot on the battlefield, just as Mao had always predicted, fighting the Japanese had done wonders for the CCP's reputation. And especially in the aftermath of On New Democracy, the party was recruiting new members left and right. By the early 1940s, the communists had roughly one million dedicated soldiers. And more and more of those soldiers saw Mao himself as the embodiment of all the CCP's promises. This burgeoning cult of Mao loved their leader, trusted him, and turned to him for hope. With each passing year, more and more followers swore allegiance directly to him. In 1943, the CCP officially bequeathed him the title of Chairman, or Chairman of the Central Committee and Chairman of the Politburo, honorifics no Chinese communist had held before. More than ever, Mao Zedong was Chinese communism. A status that was about to become relevant in a new way, when at the end of the summer of 1945, the war against Japan came to a sudden end. At the beginning of August, the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bombs broke Japan. They surrendered to both the Americans and the Chinese. For a brief period, the nationalists and communists tried to broker a long-term peace agreement as well and stamp out China's civil war alongside the World War. Even Stalin on the communist side was in favor. But not only were the two camps' ideologies distinctly opposed, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao had been enemies for decades. Without the immediate threat of the Japanese to unite them, there was little hope of collaboration. Negotiations fell apart in the summer of 1946, and fighting broke out in the newly reclaimed Manchuria. The Civil War was back on. 
On the surface, the American-backed nationalists should have routed the communists, and early fighting seemed to signal that. Though the communists fought tooth and nail, the nationalists managed to capture communist ground, including Yan'an, Mao's mountain hideout. But Mao refused to back down. If his success during the Long March taught him anything, it was that he knew he could defeat the Kuomintang nationalists, and he could do it without Stalin's blessing. Taking everything he had learned from the Northern Expedition and the Long March, Mao decided to employ a smash-and-grab strategy. Communist soldiers aggressively captured a town, stole nationalist weapons, enacted land reform, and moved on. By doing this, especially the land reform, Mao placed the onus on the peasants in the surrounding countryside to control the newly liberated territory. Shockingly, it worked. Within a year, the communists had taken control of most of Manchuria. In fall 1947, they stormed south, sweeping through the rest of China at an incredible speed. In June 1948, Mao's Red Army encircled the nationalist city of Changchun. It was the last real nationalist stronghold in Manchuria, and Mao would not give up until it was his. He told his men to starve them out until they broke. It took nearly five months. By the time the city fell in October, an estimated 160,000 civilians had starved to death. The 40,000 or so who survived had made it by eating grasshoppers, leather, and the dead lying in the streets. For them, it was China's Hiroshima. As one lieutenant colonel wrote, the casualties were about the same. Hiroshima took nine seconds. Changchun took five months. But for the communists, it was a great victory. In the years that followed, the siege of Changchun was heralded as one of the most significant victories in the Civil War. In the aftermath, nationalist morale was low. They saw defeat on the horizon. For Chairman Mao Zedong, that made it all worth it. Over the following year, town after town fell to the communists. Beijing, Nanjing, Shanghai... By the fall of 1949, the Red Army had the final nationalist city, Canton, surrounded. By the end of the year, Chiang Kai-shek would flee to Taiwan, signaling the end of Kuomintang nationalist rule over mainland China and the start of something new. On October 1st, 1949, 56-year-old Chairman Mao arrived in Beijing. On the steps of the Tiananmen Gate, he announced the creation of the People's Republic of China. It had been nearly 40 years since the Qing Dynasty fell. Since then, Mao and the Communist Party had been on a mission to defeat imperialism and capitalism. Now they had won. China was a communist state. But success had come at a price. The years of war, both with the Japanese and the nationalists, had devastated China. Mao needed to rebuild from scratch. But Mao never balked at doing whatever it took to carry his party to success. 
from walking past the soldiers who collapsed on the Long March to starving the civilians of Changchun. He would lead China into the future and fast, whatever he had to do to make it happen. And whoever was hurt in the process. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Mao's reign as leader of the People's Republic of China. We'll discuss how his great leap forward led to one of the worst famines in history, and we'll delve into the devastating toll of the Cultural Revolution. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard again. Searching for your new favorite show? Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.